Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. You ever look back on adventures in life and think, that was stupid? <laughs> you ever do that? Uh, have, I told you, have I told you about a mission trip to Nevis when I was a sophomore in college? This was awesome. Um, my freshman year of college, I went, I went to this little Christian school, and freshman year, they're like, hey, during spring break, a lot of us go on trips, but they're service-oriented, they're mission-oriented. And so freshman year, I went to Jamaica for the first time ever, but I did it in like a, we're going to go away from tourist places up into the hills, and we're going to build uh, a home, and we get to meet people, and we get to uh, serve. And then my sophomore year, the man who led that uh, first trip my freshman year to Jamaica came back and he said I'd love, I'd love for you to be a student leader on this trip we're going to Nevis which is uh, a six square mile island uh, in the Caribbean tiny little island Nevis is next to St. Kitts so you fly into St. Kitts and you take a ferry over and we spent the week there um, getting to know people listening to stories and being able to tell our stories I remember one meeting where a man asked me what my life verse was and I had to like kind of like oh I should have one of those Um, and so there was a verse that I had been really focused on at the time I was like this is a good one and it's amazing how when you're uh, pressured with something it it sticks and that verse has stuck to me ever since I kind of identified in that moment like oh this one Um, and I love that Uh, we spent the week kind of running a vacation Bible school with kids, helping them understand the story of God, helping them know God a little bit more. And at the end of the week, on our free day, we decided that we wanted to climb Mount Nevis. So six square miles of an island. The kids there had no comprehension of distance. We're like, we came from uh, a thousand miles away, right? They're like, how many times do you run around the island? That was their... Six miles, one, you know, okay, all right, I'm up to 12, 18. I, wow, that's a lot of times around the island. That was their concept. So on the, on the last day, Mount Nevis is this 3,000-foot mountain, which isn't really, I mean, really a mountain, but it's 3,000 feet above sea level. So that's big for a little island. And we made, we made the decision to just go. We didn't talk to anybody. We didn't, like, say, is there a guide that we should walk with? We're like, let's go find a trailhead. There surely must be one and start walking up. And so we found a little trailhead. We walked in. Uh, Nevis is a rainforest once you get up into the mountain. And so we're uh, walking this trail. The trail got eventually narrower and narrower and narrower until we were like, let's be real, there is no trail. We're just bushwhacking and climbing up a big green hill, right? Um, It was so dense and so slow that at one point we got to a place that was as high as we could climb, and there was like this deep ravine, and there's the top over there, and we're like, let's just wave at it and call it a day. Let's hike down. But instead of hiking down the way we came, because that was so dense and thick, and I don't feel like doing that again, why don't we just walk down the dry riverbed? We crossed it as we came in. It's right here. Let's just walk down. It's big, wide, open path. And that was a fantastic idea at the beginning. Uh, the riverbed had little drops in it. So the first one was probably two feet tall, just hop down and keep going. And the drops started to increase in 
nature. So that we got to a six foot one and we're like, okay, teamwork, right? Team building exercise in college. This is awesome. So like somebody hop down who's just really agile and then we'll stand on your shoulders and somebody squat and this is great. We've done this in low ropes and all that. Um, Six feet turned into eight feet turned into 12 feet and probably at about 15 feet, I was like, guys, I know what to do. I've been on youth group trips to Colorado and we repelled. So let's find some of these jungle vines. We're going to grab them. We're going to repel in the jungle on jungle vines. How amazing is this right now? Um, And so we did, except that our leader uh, fell and sprained his ankle real bad. So now we're kind of hiking down out of the rainforest with a guy with a sprained ankle, and it's getting tougher. And we we get to a cliff that's probably 50 feet down. And we're like, we can't do that. And we look behind us, and we're like, well, we can't go back because it's 20 feet. There's a 20-foot, like, rise behind us. We can't get up that. And the ravine that we're in, as the riverbed dropped, the ravine kept getting taller and taller and taller. And as we tried to climb it, the soil was so loose in the rainforest that it was like trees were ripping out as we tried to climb up. At this point, looking around, we're like, well, we could do the rappelling thing again. But 50 feet is like, if you fall like he just did, you're dead. You're not a sprained ankle anymore. Like We are stuck. We are stuck in a rainforest on a mountain. And I don't know what to do. What, what are we, We're going to be one of those stories. Youth group or college kids on mission trip get lost in rainforest, eaten by spiders. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to do. And we made it down eventually to just get yelled at. How stupid are you? What were you thinking? Uh, we're college kids. We weren't, right? <laughs> Have you ever been in an adventure or been in a place where you ended up feeling like, I am stuck? And maybe it wasn't your fault. Maybe... You're stuck because of other people's decisions. Maybe you don't know which way to go. There are no good ways. In front of you is not an option, and behind you is not an option. To the left and right are not options. You're just stuck. What do you do in that time? We're in a series that I'm really enjoying called I Am, which is not really about who I am so much as who God is. When God reveals himself in the Bible, he reveals himself in names. Because in the Bible, names meant something. I don't even know what Shannon means, except one time, like in high school, I plugged it into this thing, and it meant, like, ancient one. Okay, thanks. In the Bible, names meant something. It, It had to do with your character. And so people are given names, or their names are changed throughout the story of the Bible, and it had to do with the character that God was laying on them. God reveals himself in uh, multiple names, not to say multiple gods, but multiple facets of his character, multiple different perspectives where we can look at him and get to know him a little bit more. And so we started the series with Elohim. That first verse in the Bible is in the beginning, God in the Hebrew is in the beginning, Elohim, and it's the great and mighty creator God. And we looked at the holy God, how God calls himself holy and names himself that and reveals himself to say he's altogether different than us we don't we don't approach god like a buddy we know that he's bigger and far out and he's altogether different 
And yet that's not all he is. He is also Yahweh, Jehovah, which is the direct translation of I am. When uh, he's talking to Moses about rescuing people from Egypt, Moses says, who should I say sent me? And he says, tell him I am sent you. And what he's conveying there is I am always present. There is never a time that I was. There is never a time that I will be. It's always am. It's always present. He exists over time. He creates time. And yet he responds to us in time. He is ever present. Yahweh, Jehovah. I have loved this series, getting to know him and getting to see who he is. We took a week on Freedom Sunday, which I want to, as a follow-up to that, I want to let you know Freedom Sunday, I still want you to be responding. I still want you to be going to the website. I still want you to be checking out the table out here uh, for ways to respond and ways to get involved. One of the ways that we're going to respond as a church, uh, if you know us or if you've heard us talk about our finances, you know that a number of years back we chose to start giving away 10% of all the stuff that comes in to say, we don't want to just do church. We want to be able to pour into others. And so immediately we started giving 10% of everything, which was a big shift, and it was a display of trust in God. And we said we want to grow in this grace of giving. And so the next year we gave 11% and 12%. And this year we're giving 13% of everything that comes in. So that's 13% of all of the giving goes outside of us to take care of people or to get engaged with what God is doing around the world. On top of that 13%, we sent a check to International Justice Mission following Freedom Sunday for $2,500 to say, we love what God is doing in you and how uh, you are rescuing people and helping them find safety and equipping and empowering them. And we want to be in the game. We can't go to those places but we are going to be in the game supporting the ones who are going. So that's, I love that about us. That's one of the ways that we as a body can rally behind and say we are better together. And there's also stuff where God is speaking to you and stuff bubbles up in you and stories need to be told about what God is doing in you. And that's also God doing stuff in us and through us, right? It's just a little bit more organic. And we have both of those mindsets when we talk. So the other thing that's coming up, what do you say? Okay. The other thing that I would love for you to get involved in is the name tags out in front with Operation Christmas Child. We are going to get together to have a packing party coming up in November, and uh, that'll be fun for us to connect, but it's also a way to give to to children around the world and share the message of Jesus with them who... um, To receive a gift is to be told that they're loved. Um, And it's profound. You watched the video last week of kids who have received gifts and have grown up to know Jesus and are now passing that blessing on to others. So those are different ways that we can be responding. Last week, last week we looked at the God who sees. And and to know the God who sees us where we are. I love how Jim phrased it, that we need to see how God sees us. We need to see that God sees us. We don't just see God. We see that he sees us. And that's profound. A lot of people walk around life thinking that they're invisible, thinking that they're insignificant. 
And God says, you matter because I see you. You matter because I made you. You matter because I'm with you. I love that about God. Today we're going to take a look at uh, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, and how he meets Abraham and reveals another facet of his character. So if you have a Bible and you want to open up to Genesis 22, that's where we're going to camp out today. Genesis 22. Last week we talked about Abraham, um, at the time Abram and Sarai, trying to figure out how they were going to accomplish God's blessing in their life and how that went astray. And then how God saw Hagar and saw Ishmael and said, I see you and I will not leave you alone and I will bless you. Um, And Abraham and Sarai just made horrible decision there to run ahead of God and do things all wrong. And God still, God still is able to use them. I was listening to somebody recently who said, uh, God, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks, right? God uses messed up people to accomplish things that we couldn't ever dream of. Genesis 22 is something like that. Genesis 22 starts out. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told them. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they, had, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy Or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord. It shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. 
and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. So much is going on in this passage. God calls to Abraham and this is, this is the climax of uh, Abraham's spiritual journey. God calls to him and he says, here I am. And then Abraham enters into what I would, what I would guess are the darkest three days of his life. God tested Abraham. It's not Satan testing Abraham as like shows up in the book of Job. This is God doing the testing. Testing shows us what somebody's really like, what their deepest character looks like. It often shows up in difficulty and hardship. And Tim Keller, if you know him uh, as author and pastor, wrote, though it certainly didn't seem like it, this test was for Abraham's benefit. Something had gone off track in Abraham's life, and God was using this test to pull him back in. Now, to really understand what's going on at the climax, we've got to back up from Genesis 22 to say, what, what is the genesis of this story for Abraham? What is the beginning? What, what is this uh, trajectory that Abraham is on? So back in Genesis 12, God meets Abraham for the first time. In that day, He's living with his father's people. He's uh, growing up as he uh, would have. Nobody knew God. Nobody was living for God or with God. And God shows up and he says, Abraham, I want you to burn the bridges of your past. And I want you to follow me to a place that I haven't even told you about yet. But you're going to be with me and I want you to follow me. Give up so that you can gain me. And Abraham said, yes, Abraham followed God, even though he didn't know the way. And God said, if you do this, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I'll bless you and I'll make your name great. And the, the world will be filled with your offspring. And so Abraham goes, he leaves his country, he leaves his people, he leaves his father and his relatives. And he, he puts his past behind him and he moves forward with God's promise. The only problem was Abraham didn't have any children, right? And so at 75 years old, Abraham and uh, his wife are trying to figure out what God is doing, and they, they start to take the matter into their own hands, which we talked about last week. And Sarah, his wife, offers him one of her servants and says, make a baby. And a baby's made, and this is Hagar, the mom, and Ishmael, and God says, I see you. You won't be abandoned. But a promise is going to come my way. The promise is going to come through my plans, not through their own man-made plans. And so that's why in this section in Genesis 22, when God says, take your son, your only son, he's talking about the promise, the son of the promise, not Ishmael, who was the older son and was a son, but it's a different path that God is still carving out nine months after God shows up and he says I mean it 
I'm going, you are going to get pregnant. Abraham's 99. His wife is well past childbearing years, however amazing she is. And you know what their response is to God when he says, you're going to get pregnant, you're going to have a baby? They laughed. They laughed at God. And when Isaac is born, do you know what Isaac's name means? Laughter. And so in a very real way, even though their laughter was like this, I don't know if I know what you're doing or if you know what you're doing, God. That's hilarious to me. There was also this, I think, when a kid enters your home, laughter enters the home. All kinds of other things enter the home too, right? (laughs) But laughter certainly comes. I have a picture of laughter from my house. Um, Sometimes laundry folding turns into a fun little creative event when you have little kids. And this is what it turns into in my house, if you have that. That's a few years ago with Elena and Lucy like, oh, underwear. That goes on our head, right? Yeah, of course it does. And we'll take a picture and we'll shame you later. I I talked to both of them this morning. And I was like, can I show this? They're like, yeah, fine. That's normal, isn't it? Everybody does it. Um, Laughter enters the house when kids are around. And I think when Isaac shows up, laughter comes into Like where there has been dryness, where there has been barrenness, all of a sudden there's life and laughter and it's beautiful. And now we get to Genesis 22 and God says, put the laughter on the altar. I'm I'm asking you for a burnt offering. And the wording of the request in verse 2 lets us know just how incredibly painful this is. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Give him up. Now, child sacrifice mortifies us, and it should. Despicable practice. And yet, in Abraham's day, it was a fairly common practice. It was not unheard of. All kinds of people groups surrounding Abraham practice child sacrifices as their God led them. And Abraham is new in this following God business, right? God hasn't fully revealed himself. He hasn't fully revealed his way. And he shows up and he does this, and Abraham's like, well, we'll do what everybody else does. This isn't as shocking in Abraham's day as it is to us. I'm glad, I'm glad that we have changed. Abraham says, all right, if that's what it takes. And now God says, I want you to take the laughter and I want you to turn it into smoke. I want you to burn it up. Abraham had waited and sacrificed and finally his wife had a baby boy. And the question was, the question was, had God been, or had Abraham been waiting and sacrificing for God? Or had he been waiting and sacrificing for a son? Now you might say, but those are kind of inseparable, aren't they? But I think it's really, really important. To whom, to whom was Abraham ultimately giving his heart? Did he have peace and humility and boldness and un? movable poise that come from a heart that chooses to follow God rather than circumstances or public opinion or your own competence? Had he learned to trust God alone, to love God for God? 
and not just what he could get from God. Tim Keller again writes, nope, not yet. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Keller writes that uh, Abraham had turned Isaac into an idol. That the promise was in the son, right? The promise was the son. And Abraham had turned his son into the promise rather than God being the promise, rather than God being the one who he turned to, who he was delivered for and was provided by. He was trusting in Isaac rather than trusting in God. And that's a, that's a difficult or dangerous place to be in no matter, uh, no matter where you're coming from. And so from this perspective, God is actually acting for the benefit of Abraham here in a weird twist-up kind of way. Like, what are you talking about? Sacrifice your son is actually a benefit to Abraham. And it is, it is, because if Abraham had never had to come to the point of saying, I have to choose God or choose my son, he wouldn't have been as clear in his faith. And God puts that choice in front of his face to show him nothing comes between us. So in a similar way, we may not realize how many things we make idols into, how many things in our life we make idols. We idolize all kinds of stuff, and we live for people, or we live for jobs, or we live for acclamation. We live for all kinds of things, and we trust in those things, and God says, none of those can sustain you. Only I can sustain you. And so when you come to a place of saying, are you going to treasure your job or treasure God? When you come to a critical point where somebody says, I want you to do something unethical. Everybody does it. Everybody fudges numbers. I want you to do this. And you have to say, what is my greatest treasure? Because if, if your greatest treasure is your job, you'll likely fudge the numbers it won't be a big deal, noticeably, but something deadens in your heart, right? You give your heart away to something that cannot take care of you. And this is what, on a major scale, is going on with Abraham. We make counterfeit gods of relationships, too. So you may get to a point where you have to ask yourself the question if you will stay in a dating relationship, even if it pulls you away from God. Leslie and I have a friend who faced this, and when she got engaged, Leslie, uh, she and Leslie had multiple conversations. The dude didn't know Jesus. Uh, they dated through that. They got engaged, and he wasn't any closer to Jesus. And Leslie just kind of in the relationship very directly said, are you going to choose, choose him over God? And she said, yeah, I guess I am. Now, their marriage may be great, but she put him in the place of an idol when she chose him over God. God may have reconciled all of that, but she identified it herself. I'm choosing him, not God. Is someone or something other than God shifting into the center of your life? With Abraham, God isn't saying you can't love somebody, but that you must not turn a loved one into a counterfeit God. If you put anyone in the place of the true God, that's an idol. So Abraham has a choice. And we're told in verse 3 that he makes this choice pretty quickly, right? He, 
he said, here I am. And it says in the morning, he got up and he started this. He doesn't put off the decision. There's a quick obedience to Abraham. Early the next morning, he begins to make the necessary preparation. He loads the donkey, he cuts the wood, and he sets off on this three-day journey. So could this be said of you? Could this be said of us? Where if God shows up in your life and he says, hey, I want you to follow me, do you have a quick obedience? Or do you drag your feet? You're like, ah, I'm not sure if that's from God. When you, you know it is, right? We have this amazing ability to be able to muffle the voice of God into a dull, dull tone so that eventually we don't hear it anymore. If God shows up, the, t- the time to decide is now, quickly. What I also love about uh, this story is that while Abraham decides quickly to obey, it takes him three days to walk it out, right? This isn't something he's like, okay, I'm going to do it, and he can turn around and it's accomplished. This is something where for the next three days, Moses, or, uh, Abraham has to walk in obedience, knowing what's coming, seeing the end of the line, and still persevering and says, I'm going to follow I'm going to trust. I'm going to do it. And he gets to the base of the mountain, and he says, you guys stay here. We're going to go. We're going to go. And then we'll come back to you. And while God calls him the boy, uh, Isaac is not a boy at this point. Isaac is lightly upper teens or even maybe 30, some people say. So, Abraham isn't carrying him. He actually loads the wood on Isaac's back, and Isaac walks up, and he's like, this isn't a child. Hey, Dad, where's the lamb? This is a, this is a grown young man saying, hey, what's, what's going on here? And they build the altar, and they get to the place of sacrifice, and there has to be some cooperation because at 99, you're not overpowering your young son, right? So Isaac cooperates which is stunning to me and i don't know what kind of conversation they have going on and he puts him on the altar and he raises his knife and that's where god shows up to reveal that he's different to reveal that i'm not like other gods is abraham abraham stop don't do it don't do it everything you've ever known about the gods around you i am not like i am not like that i will not have you go through with this. And he stops, he stops Abraham. Now I think Abraham, uh, I think he saw something going on. Because you know what he says? He says, we'll go worship, and then what? We'll come back. And he names the place, the Lord will provide. God is going to provide the means for this sacrifice. And Abraham sees something going on. Hebrews 11 uh, reflects on this and said there definitely was something that Abraham saw. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to raise... To God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham knew, if God has me go through with this, 
God can raise him from the dead. He's not going to stay dead. And then Hebrews says, I love this. Those three days, he was dead. Figuratively speaking, right? The point where they take off on this journey, and for those next three days, his son is dead in his mind, saying, I don't know what God is doing here, but I see how this ends, and yet I see where it uh, doesn't stay ended there. If God has me go through with it, he's going to provide, and we're going to see resurrection. I love that. In Genesis 22, way, way, way before Jesus Abraham, I don't think, is lying when he says, stay here, we're going to worship, and we'll come back. I think Abraham knows what's happening. Even if he doesn't know all the details, he says, I'm going to be faithful, I'm going to obey, I'm going to worship, I'm going to offer my son that we love, and whatever happens, we are coming back. We are coming back. And I don't think he's just wishful thinking. I think God is doing something in him and giving it a confidence that says, When you obey, I provide. And it's not just a transaction. This is a relationship. Do you trust me? Abraham says, I will. God himself will provide the lamb. And so this is where we get the name Jehovah Jireh, right? Abraham raises his knife to kill. God says, stop, don't do it. And they look over in the thicket and there's a ram caught that God puts there and he says there it is that's the provision from God and he names the place the Lord will provide and we get Jehovah Jireh the God our provider the Lord our provider and it shows us something about his character and how we can trust in it God says I want you to trust me with everything you have now our relationship is where it needs to be So there's two things to note here. First, Abraham experiences God's blessing through obedience. Genesis 22 is really cool in that this is the first time the word obedience shows up. When you study the Bible, you pay attention to like first mentions. Where is this first mention? And that's significant. That gets put in its place on purpose. Obedience first shows up. Now, they obeyed before this, right? Like Noah walked with God and he listened to God. And there was obedience present. This is the first time that word shows up. It also is coincidentally, if you believe in coincidence, the first time the word love shows up. Your only son, the son you love, shows up. And it's the first time the word worship shows up. To me, that's a pretty powerful combination Love and obedience and worship hold hands in this passage. They go together. That you can't really experience love, major love, without obedience and without worship. And obedience and love uh, fill in what worship looks like. All of these things are going on. Abraham trusts God enough to follow him even when it's hard. You take away from that, Do you trust God enough to follow him even when it's hard? It doesn't have to be more simple or more complex than that. Do you trust God enough to follow him even when it's hard? And do you know him as the one who provides? Who provides? 
Is there anything that you need to do today to follow God like this? Is there anything that you need uh, to put on the altar and declare you have had a position in my life that I cannot give to you? A thing or a person or a relationship where you say, this is pulling me away from God. I've created an idol of this and I need to give it to you, God. I need to give it to you. Though this may cost me, I refuse to let anything become an idol. God, you are first in my life. The second, God shows himself as faithful. God is a God who provides. Know that you can trust God to provide for you. His provision may not always come as you expect it. Sometimes, I love, uh, if you came to the prayer gathering at the beginning of the month, uh, Finn What grade is Finn in? Fifth grade. Profound prayer. When we pray, God says yes, no, or it's coming. Right? That's simple, but I love that. When we pray, God hears. He may not always provide the way we want him to. But he's there. He meets us in it. I love that Finn has it in fifth grade already. But now there's something more going on in Genesis 22. Will you trust him and will you know him as provider leads to something even greater. If you look through a different lens, something else appears. In verse 14, Abraham calls the place, the Lord will provide. What's weird about that? Will, right? It's not the Lord provided. Like, let's mark this mountain as a place where we can always remember that God provided. Abraham calls it, the Lord will provide. Will provide. There's something in the future that that is coming. And I think Abraham saw something else that's going on. So that when Jesus is talking with the Pharisees in John 8, and he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. I think that's God giving him a picture of Jesus coming. Like, he rejoiced to see my day. He knew Jesus was coming. He knew that God would provide even beyond the circumstances of that day. Maybe as Abraham was following God through this agonizing test, God gave him a flash forward into what was coming As a couple thousand years later, a father and a son would go on a three-day journey. Jesus took the wood for the sacrifice on his back, and he walked up the hill, and he climbed onto the altar. You can say that they nailed him there, but he chose. He chose to climb up there. And this time, the father goes through with it. The father has to sacrifice his son. With Abraham, he said, don't do it. It's not worth it. And with Jesus, he says, it is worth it. It's the only way. And in Jesus, we see the Lord who provides. There is something that is broken in us, that we are separated from God. We are separated from each other. 
We are broken. And in Jesus, in Jesus, the Lord provides. He says, I want you to have everything you need to thrive. And I'm willing to sacrifice everything so that you do it. Through Jesus, through his death, a life with God was provided. And I think through, I think through Jesus, the lens of uh, Genesis 22 becomes even more rich. God provides a lamb and our sins are taken away. Isaiah 53, 5 says, By his wounds we are healed. And because he lives, we also can live. And God doesn't just provide once, right? The Lord is still the Lord who will provide. The Holy Spirit in us, day after day after day, whispers words of guidance and leading and correction and teaching us and speaking to us and empowering us and filling us and reminding us of our identity and the authority that we have as we walk out being a son or a daughter of God. The Holy Spirit is with us today, with us today, providing this intimate relationship with God. And so maybe you feel stuck today. Maybe you're, the rainforest is like a metaphor for your life. And you're looking and you can't see what comes next. The trail that you've been on has led you to a place where you don't know where to go. And I'd ask you the question, do you know the Lord who provides? Do you know the Lord who provides? And are you living with God? Are you living in God? How can you give God more of your heart? What is standing in the way of more of that? Open yourself up to God more. The Lord who provided the lamb for Abraham and Isaac is the Lord who provided the lamb for our sins. May we never, ever, ever, ever doubt how much he loves us. And when things are not going right, when we're stuck, may we still have the courage and the love and the obedience and the worship to trust in the God who provides. May we know him and trust him and follow him. Love and worship and obey. Let's pray. God, you are the God who sees. And even beyond that, you are the God who who provides. To see you as provider and to look at my identity in light of that means that it made in your image that I am provided for. And I also look to provide for others. Would you help us to trust you like Abraham we are not perfect. Abraham wasn't perfect. Sometimes we do stupid things. Sometimes we do broken things. Would you help us to trust you that you are big enough to provide? 
Jesus, right now, if there are people in this room who are stuck and who do not know you, would you speak to them, Holy Spirit, right now in this space to say, I see you. I provided for you in Jesus and I want you to have that. If people who have never known you, I pray that you'd give them the courage to leave their past behind and to step into a future with you. I pray that you give them the courage to forsake their sin, the idols that they've put up in their life. For all of us, would you do that? Would you give us the courage to dismantle idols so that we could truly worship you? We love you. We recognize you, God, as the Lord who provides. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to move into a time of worship and a time of communion and coming out of Genesis 22 and the sacrifice that was called for and not gone through and then looking to the life of Jesus and the sacrifice that was called for and realized. We celebrate that because without that, without that we're lost without that we're dead and so we celebrate that Jesus saw us and provided himself for us and he take the little cracker and Jesus said this is my body it's given for you and take the cup and he says this, this is the blood of the new covenant now it's not about how you, how you earn anything. This is about what I have done. You eat and you drink and you remember and you celebrate and you worship. We live because he lives.